Hey, we're glad you guys are here. My name's Chris, and uh, I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And if you are new to Ridge, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, perhaps you've been uh, visiting here a few times and you don't consider yourself new, but you're still kind of feeling your way through uh, being here and being part of this. Glad you're here as well. And uh, those of you that show up every single week, glad you're here and a part of this. And I want to say a special welcome to those of you joining in the Warehouse Cafe. Uh, you guys might have the best seat in the house. So uh, we're glad you guys are a part of today. And I want to try and give you a little bit of fair warning. Uh, today will be pretty intense. Uh, I, I do think this, though. I think by the end, you will be glad that you are here. I think you'll be glad that you chose to be here today. I think today will change the way that some of you look at life. For some of you, it'll change the way that you look at your life or perhaps the way you look at someone else's life. For some of you, uh, you're going to encounter something and experience something today that will change the trajectory of your life from now on. And so I think by the end, you will be so glad that you chose to be here today. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to introduce a good friend of mine, and we're going to do an interview on stage. Uh, but before we get to that, to get us started, I need to take us all the way back to college. College for me, I don't know how far away it was for you, but for me, it was a really long time ago, so long ago that this week I was dropping off my kids at college. Some of you know what that feels like. And so all the mamas and daddies in the room that dropped off kids at college last week, I feel your pain. That's tough. But I want to go back to my freshman year, 18. I think I turned 19 in my freshman year. I uh, somehow landed a, a couple of dates with this really hot cheerleader. And I would love to tell you that it was the aroma of Jesus that led me to her. But it may or may not have been the cheerleading uniform. I'm just saying. But we're going to keep that between us, right? Because we've got to keep this thing up and up, right? But uh, I, I will say this. Over time, it was certainly the aroma of Jesus and her relationship to Jesus that set an anchor in this relationship. But uh, I was convinced pretty quickly that she was my ride or die. Uh, this was it. She was the one. I will say, and some of you have experienced this, I will say she wasn't as quickly and confidently convinced as I was. Uh, some of you have been on the other side just like me. Uh, but here's what I would say. After 25 years of knowing her and over 21 years of being married, I would just like to say publicly to my wife, I told you so, right? I won, right? Um, so we, we were dating, started dating freshman year, and the conversations start off really immature, and they're about half romance and half just awkwardness. Or maybe that was just me. Maybe you guys were like professionals at this thing. But it was just, there was times where it was just like, oh, that was weird. I'm really, I'm really sorry. I hope we get date number two because that was weird. But then there was like the conversations where you're just getting to know each other, right? There's, um, you know, hey, tell me about your family and all the basics, where you grew up, you know, tell me about your school, all that kind of stuff. And I remember she told me, you know, I'm an only child. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I don't, I don't have context for that. Uh, I am not an only child. I have two older brothers, and uh, I'm the baby of the family, which explains a whole lot about me, I'm really sure. And uh, so we talked through all those things, and then the, the relationship uh, began to get more serious. And as it did, the conversations progressed as well. And I will never forget uh, when she added some, some missing pages to the chapter. Have you guys ever done this? You have like the, the early conversation and then you have the other conversation where you add some details that you left out, you know. And sometimes it's, it's because of things that embarrass us. And then sometimes it's things that we just don't know how to talk about. And it was one of those. And the missing pages that she filled in in numerous ways have shaped uh, our lives together even till today. And I don't remember the exact context. But she said, well, while it's, while it's true that I'm an only child, I was not always an only child. And she went on to... Uh, share with me that she had a brother that was uh, about a year older than her, 
And uh, when he was 13 years old, um, he had just been going through some stuff at school. He had some kids that were bullying him. And he, um, he had just, he'd had a, a deal with a girl where he'd break up. And, and it's interesting. I thought about this so many times through the years. When you're no longer a teenager, when you're out of high school, middle school or high school or college, and you, or maybe you're in a married relationship and it's more serious, we tend to look back on those relationships of middle school and high school and college and, and minimize them. But to them, that relationship and the breakups and the weight of it is just as big as our marriage stuff is to us. And so he was going through some stuff, and there were some other things we suspect that were going on. And um, he, one week after his 13th birthday, he decided that life was too heavy and the problems were too big, and he took his own life. 13 years old. My wife was 12. My wife came in that day from school. She was the one that found him. And that day, everything changed forever. Everything changed forever. For us, that was the beginning of a different kind of journey. It was a permanent solution to a very temporary, albeit very real problem. And it permanently impacted all of us, even people that he would never know and never meet, people like myself. And so here, here's my story. I hate suicide. I, I hate everything about suicide. I, I hate what it does to all of you. I've heard so many of your stories and how many of you know someone. It's your brother, your cousin, your uncle. It's you who, who have been suicidal at some point. I, I hate what it does to our society. I, I hate what it has done uh, to my wife. See, every year she watched her picture on the wall grow older while her brothers never did. Forever 13. I, I hate what it did to my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, the, the grief, the agony, the self-doubt, uh, the shame, all of the things that it produced. I, I hate what it stole from my kids, uh, the opportunity to know someone and love someone. I, I hate, honestly, what it's done to me as a parent. See, uh, some of you uh, have teenagers. Some of you remember having teenagers. Some of you, um, you are a teenager, and so you know this. Like, occasionally, sometimes, maybe, there's a little bit of emotion involved if you've got a teenager in the house. Any of you know anything about that? Like sometimes it, it surfaces as like a little bit of an eye roll or a like slam door or like angry, quick, fast, texting, typing, swiping on their mobile device. So sometimes, sometimes teenagers push back and they push back against the, and test the boundaries and sometimes they rebel. And, but in our house, because this is part of our story, sometimes in those normal teenage things, Myself and my wife responded on what should have, say, on a scale of 1 to 10, been a 2 or 3. We might respond as a 5 or a 6 or a 7 or an 8 because this is a part of our story. I hate suicide. Suicide has, it's, it's, a, it's a, like throwing a, a rock into the pond and it has ripple effects into years and lives that we can never conceive so I want to jump ahead and I want to tell you my goal today. I have two. One of them is this. I want to remove suicide as a viable option. I want it off the table. I want it off the table for you. I want it off the table for everyone that you know, that you love, that you care about, everyone that you come in contact with, everyone that will ever watch this message in the future. I want it off the table. Here's the thing. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary but very real, and this is important, very real problem. Like, what you are experiencing and have experienced, what you have felt and are feeling is very real. And suicide is not an option. 
It is not a viable option. It has to be completely taken off the table. How many of you know what this is? Shout it out. What is this? Golden Gate Bridge. Now, this is one of the most amazing uh, engineering architectural feats in the world, but it is also one of the highest suicide destinations in the world. One person every 16 days tries to take their own life by jumping off of this bridge. Uh, over time, there have been 29 people that have attempted suicide from, from this bridge that have actually survived. All 29 of them, to a person, said that they regretted their decision as soon as they jumped. Think about that. As soon as they jumped. Those, those are ones that get to tell the story of what perhaps many, many others have experienced. This is, this is interesting. There were 515 persons that intended to jump from this bridge, but somehow were stopped. Either a pedestrian or law enforcement got to them and were able to talk them away from it. And of those 515, only 7% went on to actually kill themselves at some point in their life. Here's what that means. This is so important. That means if we can pause the pain, if we can somehow pump the brakes just a little bit, if we can invite another voice or another face into the conversation, if we can get past the seriousness of that moment, and it is serious, and what you're feeling is real, or whoever is there, what they're feeling is real, if we can get past that moment, the chances are really good that you or someone will make a different decision and they will choose life. If we can just get past that moment, just take a breath, invite someone in. Now, some, some of you, as I'm talking about this, you know all too well how relevant this is because you know your story. It's connected to you somehow in a very real way right now. Uh, but there might be some of you that you're, you, you hear a message like this or you even hear a series where we're talking about emotional health and you're like, why is, he, why is the church even talking about this? Or like, is this really that big a deal? I mean, these are church people, right? Surely, surely this isn't happening here. And so a couple of weeks ago, we did a survey of people that attend Ridge Church. 90% of the people that took the survey attend Ridge Church. And a lot of people took this survey. And this is what you guys said, the people sitting in this room. 77% of you say that you occasionally or often experience depression, sometimes debilitating. 30% of you say you have had suicidal thoughts or attempts. Now, just pause. In the warehouse cafe, if you're sitting next to a couple of tables that are full, there's 10 people. That's three out of the 10. The row that you're on, somewhere sitting in this place, three out of 10. In this very room, not like theory out there, somebody did a survey, actually here in this room, three out of 10, suicidal thoughts or attempts. 68% of you personally know someone who has taken their own life. Almost seven out of 10 on that same row know someone personally, know their name of someone that has taken their own life. So yes, it's relevant. And no, it's not a fun conversation, but it is a very, very important one. So I want to remove suicide as a viable option. And the second goal that I have is this. I want to help you understand the true value of your life. Almost two years ago, December 2nd, 2017, it was a Saturday night, and I was turning the corner. Like, as a, as a pastor, you start to go towards Sunday, and my mind begins to shift to think about what the next day holds. And uh, it's just a thing, and my family knows it. And my mind had already started to turn. I'd started to move in the direction of Sunday. And I got the worst phone call that I've received in over 20 years of ministry. Um, my good friends, um, 
Kevin and Whitney Dialard. Uh, Whitney's been a good friend for a long time, as well as Kevin. And Whitney's been a part of my team, helped build so many of the amazing things that you see and experience around here in children's ministry. Uh, incredible, incredible people. Uh, and I got the call that night that their son, Tyler, 18 years old, had taken his own life. And I remember just taking a deep breath and thinking, I don't, I don't need any more reasons to hate suicide. I, but here I was, and I, and I had one. And so when I knew that we were doing this series, uh, I, I went to Whitney, and I said, Whitney, I said, you have full permission to say no to this. I said, but I, as we do this series, I said, would you consider uh, letting me interview you on stage to talk about this, to see if we can bring hope and life and bring a different outcome to others. And before I could finish the sentence, she said yes. And I knew she was terrified. This is not her thing. She did not want to be here and certainly not doing this conversation, but she didn't even hesitate, and I know why. And so I want you guys to welcome my dear friend, Whitney D. Allard, who is so brave. I want you to welcome her to the stage. So, uh, Whitney, you, you know this, the top, the top two fears uh, of all humans, one of them is heights and the second one is public speaking. So, welcome to the stage. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks, and, and then you add to it what is a very difficult conversation. And uh, I just, I want to start off by saying thank you for your courage, which you just, it, it's, it really is remarkable. Um, I think it would have been a ton easier for you to say no or, hey, can we record this? Can we do something different? But you didn't hesitate. So I want to start with the obvious question. Why did you agree to do this? Okay, so first of all, let me just say, yes, I am terrified. <laughs> this is not my thing. Um, and I never chose this story, and, and I hate every minute of this story. <laughs> um, but the only way that I can move forward and take suicide off the table is to have conversations about it. Mental health in particular is something we just were afraid to talk about. People don't want to have the conversation, so I have made, my, made it my mission to have the conversation and, and start the conversation. Um, so this is what I choose to do, and to be honest, it does totally suck. <laughs> One of the things that when you and I were talking, you said is like, this is, I, I didn't want this story, this is a story I'm living. But one of the reasons you say, okay, I'll get up there and I will uh, walk through my anxiety and I'll have this conversation because I don't want anyone else ever to live this story. I don't want any parent. I don't want any spouse. I don't want any child. I, I don't want anyone to live this story, which I think is noble. Um, one of the things that, that is true is I, you and I go way back. And I know your story. There are people here that, that know your story and know who you are. They know your family. But there are people that don't. They don't know your story. They don't know uh, what you guys are like. Um, they don't know the insides and the, the outs of goods and the bad, all that kind of stuff. And there are going to be people that watch this today and watch this later um, that don't know you. So I want to start there. Uh, tell me about the D. Allards. Uh, paint a picture of you and Kevin and your kids. I want you to talk about Tyler. Uh, help us know you guys as a family a little bit. Sure. Um, so we're actually really boring, just to let you know. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> it is. It is. Most days we're really boring. So, um, yes, I met Kevin in college. We have been married, well, it'll be 23 years. It was 23 years this summer. Um, we have a lot of fun together. We've enjoyed raising our three boys. So Hayden is our youngest. He's 15, and 
He's actually much taller he's than a, that he's now. He's got like an extra foot <laughs> since that picture. Yeah. Really true. Um, he is. He's a whole lot taller. Um, <laughs> but he is my fun-loving, huge heart kid. Um, he just got his permit last month, so we've started driving, which is real, real scary. You want us all um, to pray for you right now? I think you should pray for yourselves because you're going <laughs> to be out driving on the roads with forget, him. Forget me. You pray. <laughs> yes. Um, so yes, um, I mean, he may or may not have a video game addiction, but mm. that, that about sums up. It's okay. Most it of my staff have that same addiction. <laughs> oh, so then we have Matthew. Matthew is 18 and actually we dropped him off at NC state yesterday. I drove away and yes, my mama heart totally broke. <laughs> um, he's our middle child. He's fun loving and may have a little bit of a wild side. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a middle child. I can child. neither confirm can... <laughs> nor deny this. <laughs> yes. So his, I mean, his dream in life is to one day own a casino in Vegas. <laughs> and knowing Matthew Diallard, he may own two one day. Yeah, that's my that's my backup plan if this doesn't work yeah. out for the record. Go to work right. for Matthew? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now I'm going to own the other one. We're going to edit that out later. Yes, it's okay. Yes. Keep going. Okay. So Tyler, he was our firstborn. Tyler, huge heart. He loved big. He loved music. He loved swimming. Mm -hmm. He loved his friends. He loved school. He just loved. Um, He's an incredible kid. He, yeah, he was an incredible kid. He really was. I mean, I'm his mom. I'm supposed to say that, but he really was. Um, so, yeah. He, he just, he loved big and he loved others really, really well. So that kind of... What did he do? What were some of the things that he did that he were oh, his yes, passions? Yes. So some of his passions, um, he loved coaching kids in swimming. Hmm. So in the summers, he would coach summer swim league. Um, loved the shrimpers, the six and unders the best. I was a polywog <laughs> one time. I think it ended after polywog. Yeah. That goes I don't behind. know. Is that a thing? Polywog? Minnow? Minnow? Anybody? Yes. I would Crickets. say that's like below the shrimpers. Mueller. I love it. <laughs> shrimpers. That's um, good too. And yeah, he, one of his um, passions was he had a small group here at Ridge, seventh yeah. grade boys. He loved leading those boys and actually having real conversation with them. So hmm. yeah, those are things he's real passionate about. So the reason I ask this question is because I think sometimes when we think about a suicide, we have this conversation. We think about, we, you hear it, right? You, you think about the category of family and it's anything but your family. It's, oh, well, there must be this or that, or you, you come up with these dynamics, but by, by all standards, this is an extremely normal family. Like, uh, you know, you and Kevin uh, love each other and like each other most of the time, right? Most like of most of us married do. couples. Um, you weren't putting your kids in, in, in the headlock uh, in the Trader Joe's aisle. Occasionally. Uh, okay, well, occasionally, because that is normal, actually, to do that. But you guys, you were normal in the way that you interacted with life, interacted with each other. And I think sometimes we think about this and we write ourselves out of the story or out of the conversation because we think it happens to people who aren't like us. Mm -hmm. But you guys were thinking the exact same thing, and that yet here we are Absolutely. in this conversation. Absolutely. So uh, as hard as this is, I want you to take us back to that day. I want you to take us back to that day where everything that changed, and I want you to talk about what followed, um, set the stage of what you were feeling, what you were experiencing, describe it the best that you can for people, and kind of bring them into those days. Yes. So December 2nd, 2017, um, I was sitting a table with a friend having dinner at six o'clock. And um, 
I had just left Tyler. He was doing really well. I had dropped him at Chapel Hill. We had spent a whole week together there, actually. Um, and he was doing really well. I came back to Charlotte and was having dinner with a friend. And 6 o'clock came, and I knew Tyler had plans that night at 6 o'clock. He was going to a swim party that he was really looking forward to. Um, so based on what we had been going through, I had to find my iPhone on, on his phone, and I looked at it to make sure he was heading to the party. And at 6 o'clock, his, his phone was still in his room. And at that point, I knew. I knew something horrible was going on. Um, and it wasn't five minutes later that I got the call that kind of changed my world forever. Um, it was shock followed by just an overwhelming sadness. Um, that week that we were supposed to be at the end of celebrating his final days of, of the first semester of college, we ended up planning a celebration for his entire life. Yeah, I was in those conversations as we began to prepare, <laughs> and it was a conversation that none of us wanted to be having. I mean, it was a, it just felt so wrong, every part of it. And one of the things, though, that uh, we talked about this, all of our staff, uh, Ed was a part of the, the planning, too. One of the things that I think you and Kevin did so well is I think there was a, a level of honesty and vulnerability in, in how you approach this. It never seemed as though you skirted the issue. Uh, it never seemed as though, and I'm, I'm sure there had to be some level of this, but I never sensed any self-protection. Uh, and, and, and from my vantage point, and I, I have a front row seat to the best and worst of people's lives for a long time now. A lot of times in, in these kind of situations, People don't talk about it. There are people that won't even use the word suicide. Uh, they say it's ta you know it's taboo, it's off limits. They won't even talk about you know there's mystery around a death, all these kind of things. And 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 one of the things that I thought was interesting with you guys was your vulnerability in all of it and your transparency. In fact, when we were talking about the service, one of the things that you said you did not you would have been offended if I had pulled punches and not talked in a direct way about this. And so it may feel normal to you. But from my vantage point and from our vantage point, I felt like you guys handled this differently than a lot of people do. So my question to you is, why do you think that is? Why do you think it was different for y'all? Honestly, Chris, I can't imagine handling it any other way. Um, you and I know, we've talked about this, Tyler's yeah. mental health journey goes back a long way. Sixth grade, Tyler transferred schools. So we I, I think this is important because this is a part of the story that I know, but a lot of yeah. people don't know this piece of the journey. And so yes. I think this is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So, so sixth grade, when he made that transfer, he started meeting with a counselor to make sure that that was a healthy transition, that trans transition of schools. Um, so fast forward all these years, when he made the transition to college, I think it was very easy for Tyler to recognize I'm, I'm, something's going on here. This is not right. This is, this is not how my brain normally functions and how I normally feel. So it was easy for him to seek out help at that point. Um, and Tyler would want us to share that. He would want, again, like I said, Tyler had this huge heart. He would want me to share this and in hopes that others could hear it and learn from it. So it was never something we were not, not going to be fully 
hmm. honest about. And you were, you were honest. I, I remember this one, this one night we were sitting around your kitchen table and I mean, in a daze, right? And, and, but we're planning a funeral service. And I remember Kevin, we were talking about, um, you know, do it where we're going to do the service. And I, and I just said, guys, I gotta be honest. We cannot, you, I, you don't know what's about to happen. We're not going to be able to fit everybody in uh, to our building. We've got to find a different building. And I remember Kevin just like with a, this honest moment that was just, I, I will forever remember kind of hand, fist on the table. He said, how is that possible? How is it that we can't even fit enough people in the room uh, or, or find a room big enough to fit all the people in to celebrate his life? Yet he felt so alone. And I thought you had some really profound insights into this that I think are important. So speak to that for a second, because you knew, you know, Tyler better than any of us in that. Yeah. So he did. He felt so alone, yet he was not alone. He was loved by so many. Yeah. Um, Surrounded. He was. He was surrounded by people that loved him. He just could not feel that love. It was broken. His brain was broken in that. He was, um, yeah, and I, I would just say, I know some of you in this room are potentially feeling that same way. Don't believe that lie. It is a lie. You can be in a, in a crowd and feel alone. You can, you can have amazing purpose and everybody else around you see it but you. And I think, I think there are these lies that creep in that tell you, even though that you have this, these people, you feel incredibly alone. And he, was, he had so many people then and now that love him. He did. Yet he couldn't, in those moments, he could not pull out enough to see it, feel it, experience it. Um, so uh, you and I talked about this. We felt like the only way that this conversation would be helpful is if it was incredibly candid. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question. And, uh, and I just want you to do your best to answer it. But if I was on the other side of us having this conversation, and I'm listening to all this stuff. You and Kevin were so involved from so early. You were in relationship with, with your boys. There was, you know, concerts and things that y'all did and, and immediately getting him into counseling. And that was a part of the conversation all throughout, all the way right up until the end. That was a part of the conversation. Um, if I'm listening to this, I would be tempted to think, man, I think they did all, it seems like they did everything right. They were super engaged, and yet here we are on the stage, and none of it saved Tyler's life. And if that's the case, then what hope do any of us have? I know that's a tough question, yeah. but I want you to speak to it. So first I would start off by saying, I don't know that we did all the right things, <laughs> but I know we did all we knew to do at the time with the information we had. We did the best we possibly could, and I couldn't sit here today if I didn't truly believe that and know that. Um, I've said multiple times in this, in this, in our attempts to save Tyler, we actually saved ourselves. I think that's so important. I, I think that's so profound, Whitney. It's like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in some ways you go, I, we didn't save him, but you and I have talked about that, your ability to be on the stage, that you in some ways saved yourself because of your investment in the, in the process. What else would you yep. say to that? So I would say... To all of you, friends, parents, co-workers, daughters, sons, um, I've said multiple times, Tyler was the perfect storm. What was going on with him was the perfect storm, and it was a bad storm. Um, he was the 7%. Hmm. But there's 93% that can be saved. So don't be afraid. Go help those people. Have conversations. I've said... Um, don't be afraid 
too afraid of the answer to not ask the question. Just ask, are you doing okay? How are you doing? And I think that's true, right? Because most of us have seen someone where from week to week, their presence changed and we knew it, but we didn't say anything because we were afraid they would actually answer and then we wouldn't know what to do next. And it's okay not to have all the answers, but man, sometimes just engaging the conversation changes the story. And I think that is so big. So I wanna end, I got a couple more things. I wanna end with some practical stuff. Um, we say this all the time around Ridge. You've said it several times today in different ways, and we have, that one of the things that you've gotta have is you've gotta have some safe people in your life. And, and, and for just a second, I, I wanna imagine like some of you are listening to this and go, okay, I'm in, I need some safe people. If I had someone safe, I'd talk to them. And you're thinking about your social media group and you're going, okay, none of them are safe, to which we would say, <laughs> you need new friends, right? Uh, but, but to someone that's going, hey, I wanna talk to someone, but I don't know what to do, how to do that, where to start, how to find someone that's safe. Um, what, what would you say to them? What did you do? What would you encourage them to do? Yes. So I would encourage you to think about those people that are in your life, the friends, the family. My guess is as you're thinking of that, there's one or two that are coming to mind as the, yeah, that could be my safe person. That person I feel like I could be totally real and honest with. Um, and that's great. But there's some of you in the room that let me say, you may need to pay for a friend. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a weird way. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah, <laughs> not, no, not that. that. Not, not that. that. Um, <laughs> Carry on. Okay. Um, so, Glad yeah, some help. of you, yeah, thanks. Some of you <laughs> may need to pay for a professional counselor, um, somebody that can really process through stuff with you. Um, I know that I, right after Tyler died, it was very easy for our entire family to start going to counselors. Um, and I've been working with a counselor ever since. I mean, every other week I go and I sit and I process through this grief that is overwhelming. And it still is overwhelming and I think yeah. will always be somewhat overwhelming. But at least I'm sitting down and I have somebody that's asking me the hard questions and helping me process through to make sure that I'm, I'm okay. So I'm thankful for that. It's interesting, Whitney, I, and you, you all may feel this. Our society doesn't mourn well. We try to wrap it up into a ceremony and then act like we're supposed to dust ourselves off and go back into life. And grieving doesn't work that way. Sometimes it's a process of years and, and objective sources in our life. And you know this part of our story. So, so we get that call on a Saturday night. Sunday morning, still a lot of your family didn't know so my staff, we are we're a complete wreck, and we have to come in business as usual and pretend as if everything is okay. And I'm just telling you, nothing was okay. None of us were okay. And so for us, we've been saying in this entire series, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. I brought in a counselor to meet with our team. Uh, in fact, you'll meet her next week. I brought her in and I said, hey, we don't, you know, we're supposed to be the ones delivering hope and help and we are broken and we are hurting. Can you help us and can you walk with us? And so counselors are a regular part of our routine as well. And I would say not for some of you, probably for every single one of us, you think you're okay, but get them in your life before you think you need them. Get a counselor in your life before you think you need them and let it be a part of the normal rhythm. I think it's, it's huge. Um, this is the what some have said is the most digitally connected generation in human history, but perhaps the loneliest generation in human history. 
we're connected, but not really. So I want to ask this one. I think maybe this one will just be a good vent and therapy session for you. And maybe for the rest of us, we just, you know, get to listen in. But I, I want you to speak to this. People freak out in pain. And they say and do some really dumb things. And they really don't do some things that they should at times. <laughs> I remember Angie, this is not funny, but I remember Angie telling this story. My response to it is probably funny. Uh, of being literally in the receiving line after her brother had taken his life. She's 12 years old. And this lady walks through the line. And this is what she says. She says, Says, she says, sweetie, to my, my, my wife, then 12, you know, not my wife then, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> that would have been weird. So, so that's a different thing. So she, they said to the, my, my wife, sweetie, she, um, God just probably needed another angel in heaven. I'm thinking, like, I will, I will throat punch you, lady. <laughs> like, this is not, that's not what I would say. That's what I would say then. I'm a pastor now. I pray for her now, of course. <laughs> but but here's, what I, here's what I'm thinking. Like, first first of all, like, I don't know if you've ever read your Bible, but that's not how any of this works. Second, if it, even if that was how it works, that is not helpful at all. Like, she just lost her brother. She doesn't need to think God stole him to be an angel, you know? And so there were also, though, on the other side of that, there were people that said and did things that were incredibly helpful and that stayed in her life years and years and years and years after that, remembering special dates. So I just, I want you to speak to this. What did people say or do uh, that was helpful or say or do that perhaps you would say, never, ever do that to anyone again. And if you did, then you need to write an apology note. So what, what would you say? Yes. Because we don't know what to do sometimes. So I would say, first thing, just show up. There's a lot to be said for just being there. Just show up. Just, um, you're not going to know what to say. A hug, a kind look, anything. Just be there. Um, I've shared this with Chris recently. Um, it took me a long time to like get out of the house and feel like I could leave. And it was December, so it, it was real hard. There was a lot that needed to be done. And I'm sure it was after Christmas in January, I, I went to the local Harris Teeter, the Waxhaw Harris Teeter, which you can only imagine. I mean, it's all people I knew. <laughs> I walk in, and it was like the parting of the Red Sea. Everyone just kind of... <laughs> went away. I was, it was like I was shopping by myself. I would go down an aisle and you would, I mean, literally see people like ducking. And you smile um, now. Oh, it hurts. It, it hurts so deep at the time. I mean, at the time it was, it was real painful, but, um, yeah. So, so just show up in people's pain, just be there. Um, one of the things that one of the ways that we say that around here often is just be present in people's pain and just show up. You may not know what to say, but be present in their pain. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, and then, this is, it, uh, luckily, God, God provided some amazing people and, and put up a hedge of protection around me. There's no doubt in my mind because there were very few incidents of me feeling the other side of this. Yeah. Um, but there was one in particular, which <laughs> I can share um, today. Oh, yes, you can. Everybody's <laughs> like, ooh, they leaned in. Do tell. Um, it was the day before Tyler's services and I needed to get my nails done. I mean, priorities, <laughs> yeah, people. It's important. Um, it had been a long time. <laughs> so I made an appointment. She came in like early at 8 a.m. And I'm sitting, and it's my normal girl. I've been going to her for years. And I sit down, and I'm like, oh, okay, I just need this, this hour to breathe. Put my nails up, and she looks at me in the face, and she said, so why did he do that? And I remember just See, you want to throw a punch, breath. too, right? It's not just me. <laughs> take a deep breath get through the hour and 
Needless to say, I did find a new meal place <laughs> after that. You no so. longer attend that establishment. <laughs> I do not any longer <laughs> attend that. I think one of the things that you said that this was super helpful for me, um, you, you talked about using his name, saying the name Tyler and the importance of that. Speak to that because I think that's something I wouldn't have known. Yes. But talk, talk about the impact of that. Yes. So it's amazing how people are just afraid. They're afraid to say his name. And just I think about him all the time. Like He's always on my mind. You saying his name, it's not going to... Well, obviously it will. But you said this <laughs> too, that these good. are happy tears. It is. You said these are happy they're, and it's good thoughts. It always is. It's always good thoughts. So, well, say his name. Will it make me cry? Yes. <laughs> say his name anyway. So, I want to end with this. One of the, the mantras or kind of taglines that came out of when we were preparing for the funeral is we were talking about, man, if we could just encourage a generation to walk with their eyes up and maybe just kind of paying attention uh, that how many things would change just by living with our eyes up. And uh, this interesting, one of the stories uh, from the survivors, uh, the ones that attempted suicide off the bridge, one of the guys said that in the bus ride, he's taking the bus ride over to take his own life. He said, and on the bus ride, he found himself looking people in the eyes. He found himself getting close to the bus driver, just wishing that he would notice the pain in his face and just ask the question, son, are you okay? He said, I literally think if one person had looked at me and asked me if I was okay, he said, I think I wouldn't have made that decision that day. He said, but I got off the bus and everybody was doing their thing, headphones in, and no one asked. And so out of that same mentality was the idea of eyes up. Eyes up for life, which it became. And so one of the things I love is that you are taking pain and you are intentionally turning it into purpose and you want to write a different story for as many people as possible and so this fall you launch an organization called eyes up for life uh, that you can go and look at it it's brand new eyesupforlife.org and I, I want you to talk about it talk about the name talk about the purpose what you guys hope to do what your goal and strategy is all that kind of stuff yes so like you said eyes up it's super simple and it's something all of us can do. All of us can, can live life with our eyes up for life. Um, eyes up for those that are lonely and they're looking for a place. Eyes up for those that are lost and can't find their people. And eyes up for those that are, those that are lonely. Um, or, or the, sorry, those that are looking for a purpose. Um, so, yeah, lonely, lost, and looking. Um, this generation, specifically 15 to 24, suicide is the second leading cause of death. And that's only behind, that falls behind all accidental deaths. Like so, all the other deaths in one category, suicide is second, which yes. is staggering. Yes. So this fall, we're launching Eyes Up for Life. Our, our plan is to partner with high schools in hopes that we can really start the conversation between students, parents, and educators. We really want to get students sitting in circles, in small groups that are peer-led, having real conversation about what mental wellness looks like. We, um, we are sending this next generation into a world that um, they're not ready for. So we need to do a better job preparing them. And I believe having these real conversations around mental wellness and what that looks like, um, preparing them for themselves and to have their eyes up for those that they're close to, those friends. So not only preparing them, but giving them the next steps 
here's what we need to have an eyes up for, and here's your next step if you see one of these things. Mm -hmm. um, we want to take suicide off the table for the next generation. I love that you're doing this. You guys can be a part of it again. It's, they're, it's embryonic. They're just starting. And uh, this will be what the next season of your life and perhaps the rest of your life is aimed towards. Uh, and we, are, we stand with you and for you and behind you. There'll be ways that you can donate, donate time, donate resources, donate um, your, your um, finances to this. And so I just thank you for doing what you're doing. I want to do one more thing. So we're going to put a, a number on the screen. Uh, and, and I want you guys to do this. I want everybody to take your phone out. Everybody I want, in the warehouse, I want you to take your phone out. I want this to be uh, like the 80s all skates, right? Everybody's in, whether you like it or not, whether you can backwards skate or not. Everybody grab your phone, and I want you to take your phone, hold it up, and I want you to take a picture of this. This is a suicide prevention hotline, and it, you may feel like you don't need this for you. May, you may feel like you do need it for you. I want everyone to take a picture because you need it for you or for someone else sometime, and I want you to have it when you do that. So take a picture here in the warehouse. I want you to take a picture of this so that you have it. And then I just want you guys to do this. Will you thank my brave and courageous friend, Whitney, for giving us her time and her transparency today? Will you guys give her a round of applause? You guys can be seated for just a second. I want to try to tie some of this stuff together and just take a few minutes to do that. Um, yes, life has pain, but you still have purpose. Your life, life is going to have pain, but you still have purpose even in the midst of that. And, and I want to wrap up with this, trying to pull everything together, if I could, uh, with just a couple of thoughts from a story uh, that Jesus finds himself in, a situation he found himself in. And I'm not going to go through the whole story today, but it's found in Luke 20. I would encourage you to go back and read it for yourself. But there's a couple of highlights in this that are absolutely crucial to the conversation that we're having today and, and throughout this series. But basically what's happening, there were a couple of religious leaders that were trying to entrap Jesus. This was their normal thing. Uh, they hated how much influence Jesus had with the crowds. And so they were always trying to mess him up. So they came up with a question that they thought was sure to get him because no matter how he answered, they had him either way. And this is what they said. They said, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This was the question that they were using to trick him. And no matter how he answered, they knew that they had him. See, if he taught against the taxes to Rome, then he would be guilty of treason with Rome, which was punishable by death and they would have him. If he said that the, the taxes were unfair or whatever, or if, excuse me, if he said that they didn't need to pay those taxes, Rome would hate him. But if then he said, you do need to pay the taxes, all of his followers and crowds would immediately be enraged because they hated the unfair taxation and the pressure that the Romans were putting on them. And probably in that moment, the crowds would stone Jesus. So no matter how he answered, they had him. So Jesus says, I want you to bring me a coin. They bring him a coin. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar, of course, Caesar's image is on this coin. And so Jesus then says this. He says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they thought they had him. That's it. We have him. The, the crowds probably right here will have an uprising. They will probably stone Jesus, and we have him. But then he went on, and he finished the sentence, sentence to say this, and give to God what is God's. And Luke tells us that they walked away astonished and silenced. To which you go, why? What happened? The, these, these guys were very rarely astonished or silenced. And it seemed like they had him. What was going on? See, they were religious leaders. And these guys 
Uh, many of them uh, knew the Torah, the, the Jewish scriptures, forward and backward. Many of them had significant portions of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, committed to memory. Sometimes all of it committed to memory. So no doubt, the minute that Jesus said this, the pages in their mind began to turn. And it is, there's no doubt that for every single one of them, they landed right here on Genesis 1:26 that says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. He said, So, yeah, this, this coin bears the image of Caesar. But, but, boys, I want you to hold on for a second. You bear the image of God. See, when he held up that coin, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus had seamlessly changed the subject from taxation and coins and all of this to their relationship to and their responsibility to God. And these men did not want any responsibility to Jesus in particular, so they walked away. And in this quick exchange, Jesus highlighted something that I think is so important to this conversation. Every single one of us this morning, Every single one of you, every single person that you will ever lay eyes on bears the image of the living God. And because you bear the image of the living God, you have intrinsic value. This is so important. You are valuable to God because you bear the image of God. I, I think this is such an important piece of this conversation. This is not because of what you do. This is not based on what you accomplish. Uh, this, this is not based on how you have performed in some arena of your life. This is not conditioned on how good or bad you have been, what you have done or what has been done to you. It doesn't matter how broken you feel. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. None of those external factors determine your value. You and every person that you ever lay eyes on have intrinsic value because you bear the image of God. And that is so important to this conversation. But it didn't stop there. The next part is probably why they walked away. Not only are we valuable to God because we bear the image of God, but we're responsible to God because we bear the image of God. And it was the responsibility that made those men turn and walk away that day. To normalize suicide is to, to minimize the image of God that rests on every single human. So this next thing I'm going to say, it's, it's going to feel political to some of you, and it's not. Uh, you're going to go to the extreme right or extreme left, and you're going to use it to build the case you were already building in your mind and the thing you want to say to your neighbor, and then you're going to tell them your pastor said it. Don't, all right? I, what I want to tell you right now is I want to give you an image of some people who bear the image of God, and I just want you to feel what you feel when you see this. Here's a few of them. Here's some people, the unborn and their mothers. Immigrants, hang on, legal and illegal. Don't hear what I'm not saying. They bear the image of God. They have intrinsic value. LGBTQ, straight, children, homeless, fatherless. Your neighbor, the one that had the wrong political sign and annoyed you, that one, you remember? Black lives, image of God. White lives, image of God. Blue lives, image of God. Your boss, coworker, you, me, 
The person that you see in the mirror every single morning that you think is broken and doesn't have value, you have intrinsic value because you bear the image of God. It's not based on what you do. It's not even based on what you believe. You have intrinsic value because you bear the image of the living God. Tyler's funeral was the hardest one I've ever done, and perhaps one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do. But one of the only things I think could have made it more difficult is if I'd had to do that funeral without the knowledge that Tyler at some point had put his faith in Jesus as his Savior. Trusting Jesus, and I think this is important, trusting Jesus doesn't necessarily make the hard parts of our life go away or make them any easier, but it does make our lives eternal. I know Tyler had a relationship with a God whose image that he bore. And the reason that I know this is because I was literally doing a message very similar to this one. When at the very end, a crowd full of teenagers, I said, if you today would like to surrender your life, if you would like to put your faith in Jesus, then I just want you to stand to your feet. And right there in the midst of a whole room full of teenagers, Tyler and about four others stood up. Can you imagine doing that in front of all your teenage friends? The courage it would take. Tyler was a cerebral kid. He didn't, he didn't make emotionally charged decisions. He knew exactly what he was doing when he put his faith in Jesus. Did brokenness, emotional unhealth, and lies blur the truth for him at the end? Yes, absolutely. But I love what Paul says and how he says this. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, which I think includes suicide, I think also includes emotional unhealth and pretty much any other thing that you think you, is going to separate you from God. Nothing can separate us from God. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And it's a very specific love, not a general one. The love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you have put your faith, your trust in Jesus, whose image you bear, then you are secure no matter what happens. And death didn't separate him. Death introduced him to his father. And I'm confident that God didn't want to see him that soon, but I'm confident that God saw. I am so grateful that we have a God that doesn't judge us based on our worst moments or our brokenness or on our final moments. But because Tyler at some point in his life had raised the white flag and surrendered to Jesus, because of that, when God looked at Tyler, he didn't simply see his brokenness. He saw the wholeness of Jesus. This is the beauty of Christianity. It doesn't matter what we are, it matters who Jesus is in us. And that's available to every single person here today. You bear the image of God. You are valuable. And you're responsible. And for some of us, you're okay with everything I said except for that last line. Because we just don't want to be responsible to anybody. We think we've got it under control. What you do with this truth is up to you. For generations, people have heard this truth and walked away from it. You have that same opportunity today. In fact, that's what the religious leaders did. When they dealt with this reality, their response was to turn in silence and walk away. You can do that too. But I am so glad that Tyler did not.
that he embraced this idea of surrender to Jesus, even though, again, at the end it was broken, and he was broken. His relationship to God was not. And so I've, uh, I've asked the band if they would come back and if they would lead us in a song. And here's what I wanted to do at the end of today. I wanted to create some space just for you to have an honest conversation with God, maybe about where you are and say, I haven't felt your image, God, for a long time, or an honest conversation with God about someone that you know or love or care for. For some of you, maybe it's a, it's a declaration for the first time that, God, I, I believe I bear your image, and I don't know what to do next with that, but maybe that's a part of the conversation. But there are going to be some counselors that are available. They've got lanyards. They're going to be in the back of this room. They're going to be back at the warehouse. If you would like to talk with someone, pray with someone during the song, after the song, you're, you're welcome to do that. But I also want to do this. I believe that literally eternity hangs in the balance. And I don't say that as an emotional thing. I just say that as a reality thing. I believe everybody spends forever somewhere and we are eternal beings. And so I want to give every single person here the opportunity to do exactly what I gave that group of students the opportunity to do when Tyler stood. And perhaps be take the, the five seconds of the most courage that you've ever had in your life. And I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a second to stand up if you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to raise the white flag, and you want to begin a relationship with the one whose image you already bear. You bear his image. You have value. But he's inviting you into relationship. And so I'm going to give you that opportunity. And I'm going to invite people to stand, and it probably won't be easy. And a lot of people have already done that today. But I want to give you that opportunity. And then afterward, I'm going to have everybody stand. I'm going to pray for everyone. And then we're going to sing and reflect and process. But before that, I'm going to give you that chance. And once you stand, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to be able to put your faith in Jesus. So if you would, just bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. And those of you in the warehouse cafe, maybe a little harder to do, but I'd love for you to try and find some kind of space and way to close your eyes and to be silent for a moment. And here's what I want to give you the chance to do. I want to give you the chance just to stand in declaration that I want to put my faith in Jesus, the one whose image I bear. I want to raise the white flag and surrender. And it will take so much courage. And I want, to, I want you to try in the warehouse cafe. It may be tough to find a space to stand, but at least throw up your hand. Or, but I really want you to stand. So on the count of three, if you'd like to put your faith in Jesus, you'd like to begin a relationship with him, then I want you to have five seconds of courage, and I want you to do just that, and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. One, two, three. Stand to your feet if you want to put your faith in Jesus, if you want to surrender to him. It's a lot of you. Keep going. Don't, don't live five seconds of courage. Five seconds of courage. If you want to put your faith in Jesus, you want to surrender to him, you want to raise a white flag. All right, for those of you standing, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I want you to make this, I want you to make this your prayer. God, here I am. I believe that I bear your image. Today I'm raising the white flag and I'm, I'm surrendering and I'm asking you to be my savior. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to be defined by how you see me, not how I see myself when I look in the mirror. And so today I say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I choose to follow you. Thank you for saving me. I want everybody in this room to stand, if you will, and I want to pray for all of us. Stand with those that are already standing, and I want to pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the mercy. Thank you for the men and women and teenagers that had the courage to stand, to put their trust in you. Thank you that we bear your image, God, that you know our name, you know our pain, and you have not forgotten us. And I pray today would change people's lives forever. 
We ask all this in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus.